The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. He's some sort of free-thinking anarchist. I'd like to hear one single on satellite radio because you can't get on regular radio. White youth must choose sides now. We must either fight on the side of the oppressed or be on the side of the oppressor. Yeah, clean up this thing, hole. Do you think that Bill of Rights is a good thing or a bad thing? Um. Take your time, dear. No, 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 no. That's shut up. No, you had your up. 35 minutes. Shut up. Yeah, yeah. What is this? The uh, Republican fundraiser? Be quiet. We have no right to be quiet. I heartily endorse this event or product. And good morning. You are in tune to KUCI in Irvine, 88.9 FM, KUCI.org. This is Justice or Justice, the program that examines law, equality, public policy, and social activism. Glad to be with you today, Thursday, June 22nd, where we are going to take a look at Angry Black White Boy, or The Miscegenation of Macon Deternay. It's a new novel by Adam Mansbach, and uh, it really, really packs a wallop. Macon Deternay is a suburban white kid possessed and politicized by a black culture and filled with rage toward white America. Soon he launches what becomes The Race Traitor Project, a stress-addled collective that attracts guilty liberals, wannabe gangsters, and bandwagon riders from all over the country to participate in a day of apology. So what happens if white folks all across the country decide that they should have a public apology for slavery, for racism, for Jim Crow laws? We're not talking about reparations. We're not talking about... Uh, the United States government acknowledging it's wrong. We're talking about individual white folks going up to black folks and personally apologizing for the sins of their ancestors. Is this a good idea? And should something called the Race Trader Project be head by a white boy? Well, I'm sure it must if it's going to be a race trader project. But what about the whole idea that uh, you've got a white boy leading kind of a race riot. Stick around. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll be speaking with the author, Adam Mansbach. Some of you may know his writing. He writes a lot on issues of hip-hop and street culture. His work has appeared oh, everywhere. I'll, uh, I'll get to his bio later. But uh, really, really great book. It's called Angry Black White Boy. A lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to the interview. So stick around. We'll have Adam Monsbach coming up in just a few moments for what I guarantee you will be an exciting, funny, and somewhat politically incorrect discussion, politically incorrect discussion of identity politics in America. This is KUCI in Irvine. Threatening the horizon Hold back the pain Hold back the rejection I can No you can't I can No you can't You're not supposed to I will Going against the grain Against all reason Becoming an outlaw Very, very young Enjoying the status The street is the family My mother's tears Become my beginning And my father's end Brothers and sisters Become the inspiration For the poem By any means necessary We will survive my father. I have the flag. I have the flag. It did not touch the ground. 
That is Umar bin Hassan here on uh, KUCI's Justice or Justice, a tune titled Malcolm. And uh, that's from one of his solo CDs, if you will, titled Bebop or Be Dead, available on Axiom, uh, recorded with Bill Laswell and others. Uh, So what happens when uh, a white boy in America launches the Race Trader Project? What happens when he convinces the country to participate in a day of apology? Uh, why would a white boy want to be a black boy anyway? And what is he so angry about? 
Here to talk about his new novel, Angry Black White Boy, is Adam Mansback. This guy, this is this is going to be a fun, fun interview. Uh, his most recent book, of course, Angry Black White Boy, or The Miscegenation of Macon Detournay, uh, is a San Francisco Chronicle best book of 2005 that is soon to be a major motion picture. His previous books include the novel Shackling Water and the poetry collection Genius B-Boy Cynics Getting Weeded in the Garden of Delights. In August, he'll publish a fictional history of the United States with huge chunks missing, uh, an anthology of original short stories co-edited with T. Cooper. His next novel, The End of the Jews, is forthcoming in 2007. He's also the founding editor of the pioneering 90s hip-hop journal Elementary. He's an artistic consultant to Columbia University's Center for Jazz Studies, etc., etc., etc. And uh, his writing has been seen just about everywhere. So here to talk about Angry a Black White Boy is Adam Mansback. Welcome. Good morning. Hey, how you doing? Uh, great. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Uh, the book is is really really fun. It's it's really really great, and it's uh, it's really insightful. So uh, congratulations. I know it came out in two thousand five, but it's it's new to me, and therefore hopefully new to new to the listeners. <laughs> Thank you. I hope so. So you just reviewing your biography. You seem to have uh, you seem to get a lot of joy at at. Um, you know, pushing the bruise on the arm, if you will, that is race relations. You know, you've you got a bruise on your arm and you keep pushing it to see if it still hurts. And of course, each time you push it, it still hurts, but you go back and push it again anyway. You seem to like to do that. Explain. Um, you know, I don't know if I like to, I don't, I'm not trying to uh, push anybody's bruises so much as figure out a way that we can try to do something about those bruises. Um, you know, race has certainly always pretty much been central to my work, and especially with with the last book, Angry Black White Boy. Um, but I get, you know, I, I I don't know if I if I if I am pushing the bruise as much as I don't know, trying to trying to tickle somebody someplace else so they laugh and then point out the bruise, which. Uh, I don't know how long we can carry on the bruise metaphor. Yeah, but, um, it's, if, it's, if I stick with it a, a second longer, I would have to say that uh, if if race is a bruise that America carries, it's a bruise that we seem pretty insistent, particularly white America, in pretending that we don't have. Yeah, you know, the the analogy probably doesn't work as much as, you know, you wake up one day and you find that you've got a, a really bad cut on, on your arm and you wonder how that got there. And so it's kind of a, rather than knowing that there's something there all along, it's kind of a recognition, you know, and I think that that angry black white boy is really trying to to be a wake up call for white America to acknowledge the sins of the past as opposed to just pushing a bruise for the sake of stirring things up. So let's abandon that. You're, you're the writer. I'm not. So we'll we'll abandon that metaphor. Yeah, and the first uh, metaphor, you know, never works. Yeah. Well, there you go. Let's uh, let's launch into a discussion of of the book. Uh what was the impetus? I mean, obviously, we've got this whole, you know, history of the United States, but what was going on either for you personally or what was going on politically that that uh, kind of sparked the decision to write Angry Black White Boy? Well, the reason that I wanted to write the book primarily was to figure out a way to grapple with the question of race in America and really kind of put it on the table because, to my way of thinking, uh, despite the insistent, pernicious effects of racism, it was something that it was not being discussed and continues to not be discussed. Um, particularly, I feel like the white commitment to engaging with this question is uh, is has 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 never been particularly high, but has had reached kind of an all-time low. Um, that is to say, that white people just refuse to to really grapple with this issue because. Once we engage in that discussion, we immediately start feeling guilty. We start feeling hopeless. We start feeling um, bad in a variety of ways. And we have the luxury of backing away from that question whenever we feel uncomfortable, which is sort of the essence of white privilege in this country. Um, So I wanted to figure out a way to shed some light on the issue and bring people to the table uh, so to speak, and try to be funny about it. My my hope was that if I could write something that was funny and, and satirical, it would engage more people than a polemic, than a, a diatribe. 
And more specifically, I wanted to revisit the issue of race fictionally, um, build off of the, the, the great and profound tradition of race novels in this country, um, you know, most of which have been written by black authors because, uh, you know, that's who was forced to deal with race. I mean, that, you know, everybody but white folks really is forced to deal with it on a daily basis and doesn't have that luxury of backing away from it. So I wanted to build on the the genius works created by people like, you know, James Weldon Johnson, George Schuyler, Ellison, Baldwin, Baraka, Himes, uh, Wright, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, Toni Morrison, all of these people who've created this great literature of race, but I wanted to flip it and write a race novel whose protagonist was white, because ultimately that's who I'm most concerned with in terms of creating a change in the consciousness of, and that's also who I am. Um, and it seems to me that we're at a crucial juncture and an interesting one because of the spread and the cultural dominance in this country of hip-hop. So I wanted to explore the issue of what, if anything, was different about the racial climate and the capacity for white people to be empathetic, sympathetic, uh, and, and actually agitate for change around race, given hip-hop. You know, this is, this is obviously a culture that came out of black America, urban, uh, disadvantaged, poor black America, has become worldwide and has more white fans than anybody else. You have a greater sort of empathetic understanding of black culture from white people than any other time in history, or that is to say what we you know, consider black culture to be through the distorted uh, front house mirror lens of hip-hop. So I wanted to really explore this question, what, can hip-hop be transformative? Can it be revolutionary? Can it actually affect a change in white people? And what are the sort of limitations of the sort of trope of the downest white boy in history, which is what my main character, Macon, kind of hopes to be and, and claims to be, is somebody who has been transformed and revolutionized through hip-hop and is ready to stalk the front lines and try to affect some kind of profound change in this country. Well, and let's let's explore that a little bit. But uh, I want to remind listeners, they're in tune to KUCI in Irvine. This is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with Adam Mansbach. He is the author of Angry Black White Boy or The Miscegenation of Macon Deternay. Uh, am I pronouncing all that? Uh, I say Detournay. Detournay, <laughs> okay. Um, well, it's a made-up name, so you have, you know, yeah. liberties. <laughs> well, let's, uh, before we explore the uh, potentially transformative power of hip-hop, could you just give the listeners uh, an, an over, overview of the plot without, uh, you know, spoiling any, any major points? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, so Angry Black White Boy is a story of a kid named Macon Detournay who is politicized, by hip-hop, particularly the hip-hop that he grows up listening to in the late 80s and early 90s, some of, you know, the, the, the time that some of us now look at nostalgically and call the golden era, when hip-hop was sort of most overtly political and socially conscious. So Macon is this white kid who grows up listening to the music of Public Enemy, Boogie Down Productions, X-Clan, Brand Nubian, uh, Poor Righteous Teachers, and so forth and sort of develops a politics based on this. He's, he comes to understand uh, white privilege, white economic and institutional privilege in this country as the you know, profound force that it is. And he's ultimately so enraged by white people that when he goes to New York City to start driving a cab, his anger very quickly boils over and he starts robbing other white people who get in his cab, calling them white devils, and taking their wallets and neckties and throwing them out on the street. Now, this is a fairly aggressive action, but Macon actually gets away with this for about two weeks for the simple fact that the people he's robbing do not know that he's white. It's not that he's physically invisible. They can see him fine, but they can't really connect what he's saying with what he is. In other words, it doesn't really process correctly that a white dude is committing racially motivated crimes against other white people. So the word goes out, that some radical militant black cab driver is robbing white people. So New York City kind of loses its mind. All of a sudden, white people don't want to take cabs anymore, which means, you know, black people can finally get cabs. Uh, white people start carpooling to work. You know, it's like the Montgomery bus boycott on acid for a couple of weeks. Finally, Macon uh, sort of allows himself to be arrested. He spends a night in jail and is bailed out in the morning by his uh, college roommate and finds that he is a celebrity 
and that he sort of has the soapbox, has the platform that he's always wanted to kind of speak truth to power. So he ends up calling for a national day of apology based on a tongue-in-cheek statement in Malcolm X's autobiography in which Malcolm says that white people should just walk up to black people on the street and apologize. Uh, you know, this is a, a rhetorical statement for, for Malcolm. My character, Macon, is like, we're going to do it on Friday. So people flood into New York City from all over the country to participate in this kind of ill-considered, well-intentioned, and ultimately disastrous day of apology. And uh, New York City is kind of thrown into calamity. Macon ends up fleeing the city and uh, going down south to kind of escape from the madness that he's wrought and sort of escape from himself, and he has some further adventures down there. So that's the the main plot of the book. And I never know when I'm summarizing how to work in the subplot, which deals with... Well, well yeah, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, this, there's, there's sort of a parallel plot that takes place in the 1880s and deals with the great-grandparents, the great-grandfathers of the two main characters, Macon and his roommate, Andre. Yeah, let's put that on hold for a second, because I, I do want to explore that. But um, I think you did a great job of of summarizing the plot, which brings us to the, to the follow-up, the idea that this this white kid who who's so angry and uh, angry at his own race gets politicized by hip-hop. I'm reading from your book on page uh, 141 and 142, uh, he says the puzzle piece you're looking for, meaning the puzzle piece that explains how he became so angry and how he became so race conscious is, uh, he says the puzzle piece you're looking for is hip hop. That's what led me not only to make friends with black people, but to hang out in black communities. Most white people, even if they had, even if they have black friends, never expose themselves to any situation that will make them feel uncomfortable or like the minority. So for for Macon, hip hop was really transformative. Do you think that hip hop today still has the power to create another Macon? That's a good question. Um, generally speaking, as a societal force, no, I don't. I don't think that hip hop in its current manifestation. Well, it's you know I don't even want to say that because at the time that Macon is talking about, it was easy to talk about hip hop as a monolith as a single thing. Um, there were different strains, there were different people doing different stuff, but hip-hop was small enough that you could actually kind of pay attention to all of it at once. You know, I remember being the age that Macon was and getting my allowance every two weeks, going to the record store to buy hip-hop tapes, and you know, I would be able to pretty much buy everything that I wanted and still have a little bit of money left over to take a chance on something I'd never seen before. Now it would take you thousands of dollars to keep up on everything coming out of Memphis, Tennessee. So I don't want to be totally dismissive of hip-hop right now. I mean, I'm still very invested in it. Um, and I think still good work is being done. Progressive groups are you know, doing interesting things on an underground tip. But the culture at large has moved drastically away from what it was and what it appeared to be becoming at the time that making was a formative age. Well, let's explore that for a second, because that's one of my pet peeves, is when people are so quick to dismiss uh, an entire genre. You hear people talk about, you know, hip-hop is nothing but, you know, bling-bling and materialistic, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, posturing and so on and so forth. And when they talk about, you know, that it's, it's superficial or it's shallow, yet you really don't hear people making those same comments about rock and roll or about what passes as top 40 music and or, or, or even Hollywood for that matter. You know, it's it's almost as if there's a there's a, a, a racial bias in singling out hip hop uh, as as not having substance when the truth of the matter is you could take any genre, whether it's country music, whether it's, you know, rock and roll and or, or Hollywood. And it's really the, kind of the, the underground independent works that are truly uh, transformative and revolutionary. Do you think that there is some bias in just singling out hip hop for being shallow when the rest of the entertainment industry could just as easily fit that categorization? Uh, I think certainly whenever we talk about hip hop, a lot of, of, a lot of racial bias does come in. I mean, hip hop remains one of the kind of battlefields on which these issues of race and, and class play out. Um, and I see what you're saying. I think that a lot of these other things do get a free pass. But I think it's not so much, I mean, there, there's a lot of things in play. But I think largely it's because 
there are still more people invested in the notion of hip-hop being revolutionary, being socially progressive, than there are people invested in, you know, Hollywood being that way or country music being that way. Um, or if those people exist, I don't know them anyway. Um, well, so, I think it really wasn't very long ago. I mean, hip-hop's history is very short and has happened in a tremendously accelerated way. I mean, we're talking about a music that's only 30 years old, you know, and in that time has infiltrated mainstream global culture to an enormous degree. So the originators are still around. The original fans are still around. The people who remember a time when hip-hop was dominated by the public enemies and the NWAs are still very much here. And, you know, maybe we're parents now, maybe we're a little bit older, but we still have that... uh, brokenheartedness, really, that nostalgia for a time when it looked like this marriage of exciting music and exciting politics um, was really going to continue unabated. Now, it was a naive thing to think, because all those groups were tied to market forces, um, the pendulum always swings the other way, and, you know, it's easy to be romantic about those times. Well, yeah, it, it, I think I see what you're, where you're coming at. It's, it's kind of... You know, you think you're you've got an African American male who uh, is commanding, you know, twenty million in record sales, and one would hope that, given the position of of uh, you know, given someone in that position who would have an opportunity to, you know, stand on a soapbox and really really speak truth to power, w- would do so rather than simply you know talk about you know bling bling or or, or what have you. I mean, that's part of it, yeah. I mean, and, you know, it's never any good to ascribe leadership to people who can't handle leadership. Like, there's no reason to think that 50 Cent is going to ever say anything profound. 50 Cent is a manifestation of high late capitalism at its sort of most frightening and most brilliant. You know, this is the guy who responded to Kanye West's statement that George Bush doesn't like black people with a defense of George Bush. Now, he may be right. If George Bush cares about any black people is definitely people in 50 cents tax bracket. You know, he's on pretty safe ground. Sure. Um, but just the, the way that this interchange exists, the way that, that dialogue is still so limited is what depresses me. I mean, when I see Kanye stand up and make that statement on national TV and immediately get censored and shut down, and we'll never get that opportunity again, um, I say to myself, wow, this is just like the 68 Olympics. You've got to win some major award and have 30 seconds. You've got, you know, Michael Moore winning an Oscar and making his anti-Bush statement. Kanye West getting his 30 seconds. Do we still have to rely on these incredibly limited forums and formats to shout something in between commercial breaks and then get shut down? Um, so, I mean, I think, I think you make a good point that, you know, given where hip-hop comes from and given where a lot of these performers who have enormous access and uh, platforms come from, you would expect some politics. The same way, you know, you might expect Michael Jordan to have some politics, but he's not going to, right. and he's never going to, and that's a, a you know, concerted choice on his part, part or on 50's part. Um, I think the reason that the, the move that hip-hop has made is so problematic um, is not just what it no longer is, but what it has become. Um, and, you know, I think that's where a lot of people start to even give up hope, is the way that hip-hop has learned to replicate sites of oppression that exist in mainstream society with typical hip-hop skill and elegance and precision. So if uh, mainstream society is going to be misogynistic, hip-hop is going to do it one better and figure out how to be ultra-misogynistic. If mainstream society embraces a certain kind of vapid materialism, hip-hop is going to learn how to replicate that even better. And, you know, it, it, you know, you turn on the radio and it's 80% of the songs are about freaking strip clubs. Right. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 30 years old next week. I can handle that. It's not really going to mess me up. But, you know, I'm in high schools all the time. I'm in colleges all the time talking to kids. And the fundamental rupture that's most disturbing to me is that kids in high school, even in college, if they're not particularly astute historians of hip-hop, don't even understand that there is a connection between hip-hop and social movement, that hip-hop was ultimately fundamentally forged in resistance, in speaking from the margins, in creating community where none existed or where it had, it had been blasted. Um, and to not even understand that that's where this stuff comes from is certainly profound to me. And, 
you know, the generation gaps that exist within hip-hop generations are also um, kind of growing. You know, people talk about the hip-hop generation. There are really many because hip-hop generations flip about every five, six years due to a culture that moves incessantly forward and actually discourages you from doing any kind of homework on the history. They want you to consume what's new uh, and, you know, not really explore what's a little bit older. We're speaking with Adam Mansback. He is the author of Angry Black White Boy. And uh, let's just take one last uh, look at this whole idea of, of hip hop and then we'll we'll um, get into some more detail of the book specifically. But, you know, I am a, a nice white Jewish boy from the San Fernando Valley and uh, I certainly listened to a lot of hip hop in my day and uh, decided to pick up the autobiography of Malcolm X after listening to Public Enemy. And I really think that I got most of my race and class consciousness from listening to uh, to Chuck D. Mm-hmm. What is it, and I don't know if this is outside of, of your area, but I know that it, it's something that you, you've thought a lot about. What do you think it is about this kind of political hip-hop that appeals to... Uh, someone like me? Um, well, the first question I would have is what age were you when you picked those books up? I was about 18. Yeah. Um, I, well, I think political hip-hop has always found um, a large part of its fan base in, in, in white people. Maybe, and, you know, if we get even more specific, you know, um, Jewish, Jewish folks and the relationship, I'm Jewish also, the relationship to hip-hop um, is, is a particular one. <laughs> partly because hip-hop comes from New York, and so do many of us, um, but also because I think there's an intrinsic um, connection that, that dates to a, you know, an earlier period of connection between blacks and Jews in this country. But without getting into all of that, um, I think more than anything what it is, political hip-hop, and also hip-hop in general, um, the, the crux of its appeal is a couple of things. One is simply in a certain kind of honesty, or perceived honesty anyway, that dislocates what what our previously held sense of reality is. Um, There's a way in which hip-hop gives white people access to an experience that they do not have and do not understand. Now, and, and, you know, that is to say sort of a window into, you know, life in the hood. Um... Whether that life in the hood is being accurately portrayed is another question. Um, and at this point, it's clearly not. And it's the case that hip-hop is creating as many stereotypes as it's fighting, and it's giving you know, these voyeuristic listeners a lot of wrong ideas, a lot of like, ideas that are only going to make things worse in a lot of ways. But um, there's a sense you know, of voyeurism. There's a sense of being exposed to a reality that is a little bit beyond the pale of what you understand. Um, you know, for me, what, it, what hip-hop did was expose the hypocrisy and the complacency of the white community that I lived in. Um, because I had a dim awareness that there was a lot going on beyond those borders. You know, that race was still something that was crippling and dividing us, but it wasn't being talked about where I lived. It was being paid a little bit of lip service, but it wasn't really being dealt with in its complexity or you know, it's um, just, you know, the, 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 the depth of the problem, the, the profundity of the issue. Hip-hop at the time I was growing up was speaking to that. So I think that's part of it. I think on a psychological level also there's a desire in a lot of white kids to step away symbolically from white privilege. Now, not to actually give anything up or abandon anything, but to make a symbolic move away from something that they know inherently consciously, subconsciously, semi-consciously is problematic. You know, there's a way in which white people in this country, even though we don't want to think about it or admit it, we know that these economic and institutional and social privileges we have are not earned. They're arbitrary. They benefit us at the expense of other people. And we're not comfortable with that entirely. We're comfortable going ahead and, and acting like it doesn't exist and advancing and being cool with it. But on a deeper level, you know, it's, it's upsetting. It's and, and, and kids particularly have a, a sort of more intimate relationship with justice. They're more concerned with things being fair. So, 
Well, and, 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 and more idealistic. And, and I don't mean that in the negative sense. I mean that in, in as you say, in, in, a, in a very positive sense, having, you know, more of a concern uh, for justice. And I also think, you know, you, you touched upon a lot of interesting points. I think that um, it's not just hip hop that has an opportunity to, to kind of do that, to kind of pull back the veneer on, on you know, white privilege. I think, uh, you know, Marilyn Manson has appealed to so many uh, Midwest white kids by maybe, you know, peeling back the veneer of, of Christian privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, in your book, you have a, a great reference to uh, trust fund anarchists, which I also think is, you know, is really funny. You take a look at some of the, the kids who are the most um, politically progressive and they are the ones, well, you're, you're in Berkeley. I mean, look at Berkeley in the, in the sixties, you know, it was, uh, largely a lot of, you know, white privileged university students who were, were, you know, rebelling against society. That's not to discount the Black Panthers and, and the civil rights movement and so forth. Right. Well, the, the other, the only other point I wanted to make around that is in this escape, um, you know, so hip hop allows white kids to step symbolically away from whiteness. That's mostly, I mean, it's an interesting thing, but there's a lot that's wrong with it because what I'm seeing more and more now at, in today's current political climate and hip-hop climate is kids who are substituting acquisition and consumerism for actual politics. So we have a situation today where it's like, yo, if I buy Talib Kweli's album, I'm political. Like, I'm, I'm revolutionary. It's like, nah, dude, you just bought an album. You know? right. You're not actually doing anything. You're, may, you're maybe consuming something that you know, is giving you a little bit of a political rush, but that's not the same as actually doing something. And hip, you know, a, a lot of white kids end up feeling real good about themselves because they engage in the consumerism of hip-hop, and they pat themselves on the back, and they develop some politics, but it doesn't really go very far. And um, they end up being very complacent about it and very self-satisfied because they feel like, you know, they're, they're down with hip-hop. Um, and they end up living in the kinds of communities that are going to make them feel good about themselves, i.e. Berkeley, i.e. Fort Greene, Brooklyn, to name the place I moved before I lived, I lived before I moved here, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, whatever the bastion of multiculturalism and uh, multiracialism is, they move there, they get some affirmation, and they chill. And they have a multiracial circle of friends who all go to the Dead Press concert together, as opposed, say, to going and taking that race consciousness they've developed where it's most needed, like, say, back to the suburbs that most of these kids probably grew up in and confronting their old high school teacher or, you know, their parents or their parents' friends or whoever the figures were who were enforcing a certain kind of racial paradigm when they were growing up. That move doesn't get made. It's instead really about self-affirmation. So instead of challenging these kids and shaking them up, which is what hip-hop used to do, because it, it clearly just simply didn't give you any, any place to hide as a white listener if you were going to remain engaged, you had to figure out, okay, Grand Poobah Maxwell just said all white people are devils. Now, where do I fit into that? Is that true? Is that false? How do I grapple with that? How do I carve out a space for myself to live in, particularly since I know that, you know, MC Search was his A&R. So is Search the only one who's not a devil? Is there a place for me? You know, how do I grapple with this? What is the historical legacy? And how do I, you know, find some way to um, engage? You know, how do I prove to Grand Poobah Maxwell that I'm not a devil? <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. I mean, it sounds kind of silly. Well, but... it's, I, I think it's brilliant. I think you, you, you really said, said a lot. And uh, how are you doing for time, by the way? I know we're are, are, could you stay for the hour? Is that? Uh, yeah, I can do that. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, you, you, you said a mouthful, and I think it's it's really great stuff. I want to get back a little bit to the book because it is a perfect segue. Uh, it seems that Macon shares similar views that it's not just about buying an album or listening to hip hop or you know performing slam poetry. That uh, there actually needs to be be uh, more than uh, you know to you have to be more politically active. Um, it seems like your book is preoccupied with the question of whether it is possible for uh, people to transcend the biases of race and actually, you know, perform some kind of progressive uh, transformation on race relations. Um, 
could you talk about this idea of of the day of an apology and how you came up with that idea? I mean, I know you you talked about it's it's a kind of a, a passing reference in in uh, Malcolm X's writings, but uh, how did that become the crux of the book? Well, I mean, I wanted to. I mean, first of all, you know, I want to emphasize that the book is a satire. Um, so what I'm trying to do is take serious issues uh, and sort of blow them out to the craziest proportions I can and um, make it funny, make it, uh, you know, sort of, sort of explore the, the, deepest, the deepest regions and the logical or even illogical conclusions of certain thoughts and philosophies. So everybody in the book um, is an extremist and everybody in the book is in for some level of ridicule, even though I love them dearly. Um, the Day of Apology is meant to sort of dramatize um, this whole this whole notion of you know what can be what can we do you know what what kind of action can we perform to actually like make a difference it's something that making comes up with very much on the fly and do you think i mean it, i guess my question is it seems that a lot of the book is is preoccupied with the question of whether there are, you know, simple solutions right. to to the race problem, and it seems that, uh, you know, Macon thinks that if he simply hangs out with with black folks and listens to hip hop, that he's somehow quote unquote legit. And part of, you know, without giving anything away, part of the book is this examination, this realization that it, that as you said earlier, just because you buy a Talib Kweli CD doesn't mean that you're suddenly legit or you suddenly you know, transcended your, your racial biases. And at the same time, this, this whole idea of a day of apology, which, uh, as your book notes, Malcolm didn't take too seriously. And certainly your book by taking this idea of a day of an apology is really satire, uh, also kind of sends a message to the reader that there are no quick fixes. Am I kind of characterizing your, your point? No, I think that's true. Um, I mean, Macon is a kid who, is sort of laying in wait for the you know the the ultimate moment of reckoning. He understands that everything he's done to date um, is not so significant. He understands that the level of approval he's received from the black community, you know, he he achieves simply by not being a total jerk. Um, which, sad to say, is the case. I mean, you know, any 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 white kid who displays sort of you know the basic. Um, sympathies and humbleness and rudimentary kind of um, levels of respect when approaching something like hip-hop is going to be embraced. And so the the criteria is not as uh, difficult as perhaps it should be to get that level of acceptance. Macon knows that. He knows that he can spout off about hip-hop, he can spout off about the books he's read, but that ultimately there is some future moment at which his sympathies will be put to the test. You know, a, a, some kind of, you know, nationwide or personal moment of reckoning is going to happen. And he doesn't really, he, he's savvy enough to know that he doesn't know what he will do at that moment. He would like to believe that he will do the right thing and remain true to his convictions, but he's also very aware of the way in which white people can back away at any given moment from this question of race and retreat into the comforts of whiteness. So, this day of apology in some ways becomes his attempt to force the issue as much as possible. Um, and I mean, what it's meant to be is absurd and farcical in a lot of ways. I mean, what you have is thousands of people who are basically jumping on a bandwagon. Macon is the new face on their TV. He's cute. They don't quite understand all of what he's saying, but he's telling them to get on a bus and come to New York. And it sounds like a fun idea. So you've got thousands of people roaming around attempting to apologize. And you know, there are many questions that are sort of unaddressed in this day of apology. What are we apologizing for? How are we going about it? What is backing up this apology? Is there any actual change that's going to proceed from it? And perhaps most interestingly of all, on the other side, like, what do you do with an apology? How do you react to somebody giving you this kind of lukewarm apology for what presumably for you know 400 plus years of oppression slavery lynchings jim crow laws stealing rock and roll the whole nine sure what do you do on the other side of that it basically um traps the the person on the receiving end of the apology i mean it's not really appropriate to 
accept this apology, nor is it really appropriate to, you know, it's hard, it's hard to muster anger when somebody is apologizing to you. That doesn't quite seem appropriate. There's really, it sort of paints people into a corner, traps them in a corner. Well, and, um, and that's the beauty of, of your commentary on, on this whole idea of a day of apology. All one has to do, if, if we take this day of apology seriously, is walk up to a, a stranger, no mind you, just someone who, who's got an, uh, you know, enough of the pigment in their skin and apologize for things that white people really haven't been able to, to grasp, whether it's solipsism or just not being in that situation or, you know, what have you. Mm-hmm. And, and once you do that, your system is cleansed, it's almost like going into a confessional. Mm-hmm. Now the onus is on, uh, you know, black people to decide what they want to do about it. And if, if they're not forgiving, then white folks could always say, well, you're just holding a grudge. Right, exactly. Well, I was wondering uh, if, if you do have your book in front of you, if you wouldn't mind reading a passage for us. If you found a profanity-free one, I'm impressed, and I'd be. <laughs> I really hope it's it, it is. It's uh it's on page uh, two hundred two, I think, okay. through two hundred four. It's when when uh, Macon is on this show called uh, Pedantic Perspectives, mm-hmm. and uh, he announces this this idea of of a day of apology. Okay, wow, this is profanity-free. I must have forgotten to throw some curse words. Yeah, I think so. So just until when he finally announces, you know, in (laughs) in the name of so-and-so. I think it gives our readers... uh, I really don't want the hour to run out without people getting a sense of, you know, how profound the book is. Okay, so where do you want me to start here? Uh, How about start with the welcome on the bottom of page 202. So this is after Macon has uh, kind of blown up, and he's on the talk show circuit, and he's being... um, sort of brought around to various shows, and this is a televised roundtable that he's been booked on. Kind of like a McLaughlin group thing or whatever. That kind of thing, okay. yeah. Um, the other guests on it are uh, a guy named Jackfruit Preston, who's a former New York giant who's now running for Congress. He's kind of a conservative uh, black guy. Alan Umfufu McDowell, who's kind of a grassroots uh, activist and owns several hair salons called uh, Dream Weavers in Harlem. And uh, Andrea Jensen, who is a white professor of African American studies at Columbia University. Which is just great. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so, all right, here we go. Welcome to Pedantic Perspectives. I'm your host, Eric Lyle, and today's topic is that most persistent of American conundrums race relations. Joining us, as always, are four experts in the field, including one, Macon de Tournay, whose recent exploits have drawn national attention and regalvanized discussion of the issue. Welcome, Macon. We'll begin with you. What do you see as the biggest obstacle in improving the state of race relations in America? White people, said Macon. He sat back and crossed his legs. I couldn't agree more, Professor Jensen blurted, fastest racehorse out the gate. Until more white people commit to opening channels of dialogue, forget channels of dialogue, interrupted Macon. That lets them off the hook too easy. How can you even start talking without a basic acknowledgement of culpability? Jack threw Preston through his bulky ex-athlete's frame forward and pushed his over-large glasses against his forehead. The last thing we need to do at this point is worry about assigning blame, Eric, he said, holding his palms a foot apart as if clutching an invisible football. Our duty as a nation is to move beyond the problems of the past and embrace the principles of equality on which this country was founded. Macon burst out laughing. That's funny for so many reasons, he said. You think the black community should just forgive and forget and look ahead? Ahead to what? All those great token jobs? Getting shot by cops, talked past in school, turned down by banks, and thrown in jail? Ahead to leadership that tells them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, learn to fit into white society, and laugh at racist jokes around the water cooler? Alan Umfufu McDowell thrust a splayed hand into Macon's line of vision. And what makes a 20-year-old white boy such an expert on the black community, he demanded. What we need is to be left alone by outside agitators like you and bourgeois politicians like Brother Preston and allowed to build our own economic and political power bases. Macon turned and smirked at him. His discomfort had melted away under the heat of good old-fashioned open antagonism. This was just like sitting on the couch at Lawan's crib, and none of these fools were anywhere near as hard to interrupt as jihad, which is a friend of his. Economic and political power bases, huh, he asked. You think white people are going to stand for that? Not in a million years. We'll be in there slinging St. Ives and gentrifying blocks before you can say each one teach one. 
Unfortunately, the fact is that y'all can't rebuild the black community unless white people decide to let you do it. Lyle, sensing that Allen was seconds away from leaping across the coffee table, stepped into the fray. So you contest that the burden rests solely on white people making. The word burden shouldn't even be used in the same sentence as white people, Eric. The burden is being treated like a criminal when you walk down the street, getting convicted twice as often as whites in courts of law and incarcerated twice as long for the same crimes. And you know what? Even if white people do decide to get down with some dialogue, the burden will still be on black people to try to explain what's wrong. The days of white people apologizing for their sins are over, said McDowell ominously. Thank you, said Preston, smoothing his yellow club tie. When did they start, asked Jensen. Malcolm said whites should be walking up to every black person they pass on the street and asking for forgiveness, but it's never happened. It's not a bad idea, mused Macon. It won't change anything, but it might be good for white folks to humble themselves like that. He stroked his chin and boom. What the hell, he decided. Let's do it. On behalf of the Race Trader Project and in the name of El Haj Malik El Shabazz, I hereby declare this Friday to be the first annual day of apology in the city of New York. Perfect. Wow. Thank you for reading that. That uh, hopefully gives readers a sense of what they're in for when uh, when they pick up angry black white boy. Uh, we're speaking with Adam Mansback. He most is, of it is funnier than that, though. I think that's <laughs> yeah. Most of it is. Unfortunately, it's not all it's not all radio uh, radio no. friendly. No, but it's not uh, radio friendly. it it's really funny. It's it's really uh, it's really deep. We've only got a couple minutes left, but let's go back if we can and. Uh, Talk a bit about some of the history behind the history in uh, in Angry Black White Boy. Uh, there's a character, Fleet Walker, that plays a really prominent role in your novel. Uh, tell our listeners who he is and how you came up with that amazing parallel. Fleet Walker was the first and last black player in Major League Baseball in the first period of integration, which is not as widely known. Uh, from 1882 to 89, the International League, which then became the National League, was actually integrated. Um, and I wanted there to be a sort of historical narrative that balanced the present one. I wanted to create some parallels. I wanted to point out the ways in which when we deal with race today, we're really only dealing with sort of the visible tip of an iceberg and what's submerged below the surface is sort of the history and the legacy of uh, violence and, and bloodshed in this country, and I wanted to make all of that very personal for my characters and deal with this notion sort of of the sins of the fathers, so that Macon wasn't just inheriting a general legacy of white racism, excuse me, but something much more personal. So uh, Fleet Walker is the great-grandfather of Macon's roommate, Andre, and Macon's great-grandfather is another ball player named Cap Anson. And these are both historical figures. Cap Anson was a Hall of Fame first baseman, first guy to get 3,000 hits, basically baseball's first superstar, and also, by all accounts, a deeply racist man who helped to establish the color line, helped to segregate Major League Baseball. So while the events of the book are playing out in the present, there's a, a sort of parallel story that is also being told that deals with a fictionalized last game between Fleet's team and Cap's team shortly after the league has passed the rule that black players will no longer be allowed, and Fleet is still in the league only because of a kind of grandfather clause. He's the only player who remained in the league, in fact, when everybody else, all the other black players, decided that they would just, you know, leave as soon as this rule was passed. So um, there's sort of some family history between Andre's family and Macon's. And they don't come together as roommates by accident. They come together because Macon is aware of this history and actually sought Andre out as a roommate because he had the desire to kind of grapple with this past, you know. He felt that it was somehow cosmically right that he live with the great-grandson of the man who was, you know, almost murdered basically by his grandfather. And we should point out that uh, a lot of your, your text uh, is uh, adapted, I guess, from uh, a book by uh, David Zhang titled Fleet Walker's Divided Heart, The Life of Baseball's First Black Major Leaguer. Um, I certainly read that book. I wouldn't say it's adapted from it. Um, the baseball game, which comprises about three-fourths of the parts of the book that deal with Fleet, is entirely made up. That game actually never happened. There was ah. never a confrontation between them. Um, Dave, uh, uh, that book is, is excellent, though. It's a great biography of Fleet Walker, and it was certainly valuable to me. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you clarified that. That's important yeah. to know. And all this stuff, and, and uh, Fleet actually did write a book 
Um, Fleet was an amazing guy. I should talk a little bit more about him. He, in, after his playing days, he went on to write a book called Our Home Colony, which was a back-to-Africa tract. This is the guy who had integrated Major League Baseball, and he had given up entirely on America and wanted to just ship all black people back to Africa. He also um, killed a white man in a, in a fight outside a saloon in 1891, two years after being forced out of baseball, um, was put on trial, got his old Oberlin law professors. He was a graduate of Oberlin, which is the first integrated school of higher learning in the country, got his old Oberlin law professors to defend him and was actually acquitted pled self-defense and was acquitted in 1891, which is fairly amazing, you know, on a lot of levels. Um, You know, once pulled a pistol on a guy who was heckling him during a ball game in Toronto, just a deeply fascinating and and troubled and and brilliant guy. Um, But the book that Fleet wrote in the context of Angry Black White Boy, I made up. So all of the there are excerpts from a book that Fleet wrote in my book, but that book is fictional. That's sort of a, a book that Fleet allegedly wrote much later, sort of toward the end of his life, where he reflects on things. Um, it's more of an autobiography, and that. that book actually doesn't exist. So the, all of that stuff is made up. Well, it's good to clarify, and we're, we're just about out of time, but uh, a couple of last things. I should point out that uh, I was watching an, uh, uh, an older episode of, of The Simpsons when uh, – Mr. Burns is uh, trying to um, win a bet about the uh, the power plant softball team, and uh, they made a reference to uh, to Cap Anson, who was one of uh, this evil capitalist Mr. Burns' favorite players, which, which I, I found really interesting. I, I know nothing about sports and know nothing funny. of Cap Anson until reading your book. Uh, we just have time for one last question, and then we want to give listeners information about the book again. But so... If one of the points of angry black white boy is that there are no easy fixes to, uh, you know, the issue of race relations in the United States, uh, what do you think needs to be done? Well, I'm going to I'm going to address. See, when I hear what happened, what has to happen for, you know, race relations in America, I sort of mentally translate that question for myself anyway, into how do we deal with white privilege? Because I think that ultimately is at the crux of it. Um, economic institutional advantages that white people are basically born into and that we take on and take up uncritically. So my answers have a lot to do with how to force white people or force ourselves to grapple with those things. Um, And, you know, I want to call, first of all, for a sort of self-critical, unrelenting sort of meditation on the, na- the nature and the notions of privilege, the ways in which really every minute of every day being white gives you these advantages. And, you know, racism is not just what happens, it's what doesn't happen. It's not just getting pulled over for driving because you're black, but the fact that I'm in the next lane doing 110, no problem. So it's not just getting followed when you go into a store because some shop owner is suspicious of you because you're 18 and black with a baggy white T-shirt on. It's me in the next aisle not having to deal with that. It's not having to deal with the psychic burden associated with constant profile and constant racism. Um, so there's a way in which, well, you know, so I, I want to I call for people to, to grapple with that on a certain kind of level, but... I don't want to limit the the response to, you know, think about it. I think fundamentally more important than that is to get involved and to, you know, I mean, the thing is this, racism so pervades every facet of our society that you don't actually have to, you know, fight racism directly. You don't have to actually join some kind of anti-racist group. You can really see it manifested in everything. So no matter what your issue is, race is going to intersect with it. So, you know, if your issue happens to be uh, the thing that, you know, the thing you feel passionately about is like, you know, prison reform. Well, it just so happens that, as I just quoted from my book a, a few minutes ago, the rates of incarceration and sentencing are wildly disparate for white and black people. And um, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there because we are just about out of time. Okay. But uh, I was wondering if you could give your, I'm really sorry about that, if you could give your uh, your web address so listeners know how to find out more information about uh, your book and all the wonderful things you're doing. <laughs> sure. It's, uh, I've got two. One is angryblackwhiteboy.com uh, and the other is 
and they're the same site actually. <laughs> uh, but if you can't remember that and you prefer to remember my name, it's adammansback.com. And we'll definitely have to have you back. It's a great book. Thank you so much for devoting the hour for us this <laughs> my morning. My pleasure. Take care. Thank, thank you. Take care. And uh, stick around, uh, running over, but uh, Politics of Food coming up in just about 40 seconds. This is KUCI's Justice or Just Us, KUCI in Irvine, wishing you peace.